Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all here. We'll, we'll pray and then we'll get into God's Word together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. Uh, we give you thanks for this testimony, Lord, um, and the encouragement that we've been given to trust in you. Uh, may we continue uh, to look to you for our all. Uh, may this passage help us look to your Son, Jesus Christ, and know that he is, that he is our King and our Lord, um, and that he has come to save us from uh, our sin. Lord, we pray uh, that you encourage our hearts today as we look at this passage in Matthew. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we continue um, our series in Matthew by looking at chapter 17. Now, the picture up till now of Jesus is growing, isn't it? Uh, we've seen Jesus' compassion for uh, people. We've seen loads of miracles that he's done. We've understood more about why he, he had to come. And then last week, Peter answered a question that Jesus put to him. He said, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter in verse 16 of chapter 16 says to him, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now today, we almost continue with the answer that Peter gives, um, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we're going to see three pictures today of Jesus that are going to help us grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. So the first picture that we see is of the glorious son who's transformed before their eyes. We saw the pictures that Dave had on the screen earlier. Um, now it's been six days since chapter 16 um, where Jesus predicted his death. Peter, James and John are together and they go up a mountain where Jesus is transformed or transfigured, that it's a word that's used to um, metamorphosis, where we know is a caterpillar that gets transformed. Um, his face is made bright, his clothes are as white as light. He's made glorious before them. Moses and Elijah also appear. It doesn't say why they actually are there. Um, and we could say, we could probably guess at a lot of reasons why, but it doesn't really say. Um, I'd love to know what they talked about because it says they talked, Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus. Wouldn't you love to know what they said? <laughs> well, Peter opens his mouth and once, we get, once again, we know that nothing important is going to come out. Three shelters, he says. A cloud starts to come over. There's no response to Peter, but a voice is there. A voice speaks to them in verse 5 and it's God the Father. He said, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now the disciples heard the voice. They saw the cloud. And in fear they're, they're on their knees, aren't they? And it, it's all... It's at that point that Jesus touches them and tells them not to be afraid. It's over, it seems like. The lights are out. Moses and Elijah are gone. And they start heading back down the mountain. Now as they're walking down the mountain, Jesus... Uh, the disciples ask why the teachers of the law say that Elijah needs to, be, to come before the Messiah. Now they got this from Malachi chapter 4. We're not going to go there. Um, but it says in Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah will come before the Messiah. And Jesus tells them that Elijah had, had to come 
Yes, the teachers are right. And in fact, Jesus helps them understand that, it, that John the Baptist was the Elijah that, they, um, that, was, that was to come. And this is the first scene. Now, I want to focus right now on the words of, Je- of, God, of God's words in verse 5. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, this is, this is a repeat of the baptism, except we have a little bit extra at the end. Listen to him. And I think the context is helpful here. As I, as I started, I mentioned that Peter has just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the son of the living God. And after that, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to die. Peter says, no way. That will never happen. And Jesus rebukes him. Now, it seems like the disciples are unsure of many things. And it seems like here, it's like God's giving them some positive reinforcement, isn't it? We have this amazing confirmation where where Jesus' face is lit up. His clothes are made bright. He's made glorious before them. As Dave mentioned in the talk, he's, it's his eternal presence or his, the image of him in his eternal glory before them. And God speaks to them from the cloud and says, listen to him. <laughs> Peter's rebuked for saying Jesus, for saying he, uh, Peter rebuked Jesus for saying he would die. Yet God's voice from heaven urges his disciples to listen to Jesus. He's the glorious son. His voice and his words are trustworthy. Jesus' death would open the way for us to have a relationship with with the father. I mean, this is an important time for the disciples to start listening and understanding what Jesus is saying to them. And I think it's also a good application for us, isn't it? Jesus has, has been shown as the glorious son of God. Do you listen to him? Does each word shape the decisions and actions you take each and every day? Another testimony that I heard recently reminded me to make the time and effort to know the God who saved us. The right response to him is to listen to Jesus. Christianity isn't so much about a system to get right with with God, but it's about this person, Jesus, So, of course, we need to listen to him. God says to us, trust him. And trust him means listen to him. At a conference that Corinne and I were at um, a few years back, um, the speaker said to us that authentic listening is so close to love that it's hard to tell the difference. (laughs) Authentic listening is so close to love that it's hard to tell the difference. Maybe it's time we showed God how much we love him by listening to him and listening to his words. Well, the second picture we we see here is of um, the powerful son. It's in the next section in your your Bibles. And it seems Peter, James and John have arrived at the bottom of the mountain um, and they've been met up with the other disciples. Uh, A man approached Jesus in verse 14 because his son was suffering from seizures. Now, in verse 18, we see that the boy is actually demon-possessed. It's made clearer down there. And in verse 17, um, 
it's, and it's in verse 17 that Jesus first rebukes the disciples. He can't believe that they still don't know what to do. It seems like they should have known what to do, um, but they still haven't got it all together. Look at, look at verse 17 with me. It says, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Then Jesus shows us his power and we see the second rebuke. This time the demon. Look at, look at verse 17. Uh, at the end of verse 17. Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed from that moment. Now we saw Jesus transformed up on top of the mountain. Bright, fla- bright face, bright clothes. And now we see that the boy is transformed. He's no longer demon-possessed because Jesus has power over the demon. The demon listens to Jesus and comes out. Now, it's interesting that the demon actually is immediately obedient. He understands and he listens to Jesus. He knows the authority of Jesus. He knows that Jesus is powerful It's a stark contrast to the disciples, isn't it? And their ability to cast these demons out. Have they been listening to Jesus? Like you said, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Sadly, it seems that they've failed to listen to the powerful son. Now, it's a shame that not all of them were up on top of the mountain to hear God speak to them as well and say, listen to Jesus. Our hope is that Actually, maybe the others told the other disciples, hey, we need to listen to Jesus. Then once everything is quiet, the disciples ask Jesus why they couldn't drive out the demon. And Jesus said to them in verse 20, because you have little faith. This is why Jesus rebuked them earlier. The unbelieving ones, those without faith, it seems they didn't trust that God could do what they asked. Now, we don't know if they thought God was weak. We don't know if they thought um, that, or or perhaps it was because Jesus had taken um, the more prominent disciples up the mountain that the others thought, oh, we're all alone. We don't have the, the, the important three and Jesus with us. Oh, we can't do it on our own. But in verse 20, they are the little faith ones. Their lack of faith in Matthew has been a bit of a theme, hasn't it? Um, It's striking to compare the disciples' faith to the centurion who said, well, just say the word and it will happen. You're a man of power. You can just tell the demon to go and it will happen. You can can, um, say that my son uh, will be healed and it will happen. What faith? Or perhaps the woman who just reached out and touched his coat... What faith did she have? Or, or just a few weeks ago, we heard about the woman who said, well, well just give me a few crumbs. That's enough. <laughs> These people all had faith. Again, the, the little faith disciples are on show again. And then he says in verse 20, uh, in verse, then in verse 20, he tells them how much faith they need to move a mountain. I tell you the truth. If you have faith, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, he's probably just pointing to the, the mountain they've just come down, um, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. 
What's been confusing for me over the last week as I've looked at this passage is, well, is that little faith isn't enough, but small faith is enough. Little faith isn't enough, but small faith is enough. And I think it could be that small mustard seed faith is big compared to their little faith. I think that the point is that the moving of the mountain isn't dependent on the size of someone's faith. Sure, you need to have some faith, little faith, even small faith will do. Faith as small as a mustard seed is enough because the faith is placed in someone much bigger and much more powerful than them. The disciples should have realised that Jesus is the powerful son. The reason that a small faith is effective is because the faith in the all-powerful God because the faith is in the all-powerful God who can make it happen. For that reason, only small faith is needed because for God, nothing is impossible. What the disciples needed was faith to listen to Jesus, to trust him, to trust that he can do all things for them. With small faith, nothing will be impossible. And what's been staggering to me in this whole picture is all that the disciples have seen up until now and they still lack faith in this powerful son. They've seen Jesus calm the storm. They were even afraid because they understood how much power he must have. Peter walked on water. They've twice seen Jesus turn a few loaves and fishes into a meal that satisfies thousands with leftovers. They've seen countless people healed. And in chapter 10, Jesus even gave them the power to go and heal. So what's gone wrong? It was their lack of faith. So what is our faith like? Do we trust in the all-powerful God to do the impossible? As Janet was just sharing with us, these people that she mentioned who need to hear the gospel... Is our God powerful enough to affect change? Do you have the faith that your God can do this? Now, I imagine that sometimes some of us um, have doubts about Jesus. We waver a little bit. We have good moments and bad moments. Maybe we're a bit like the disciples at times. We can do something at one point and then it just sort of... We get all nervous and, oh, maybe God can't really do that. But I want to encourage you that we have what we need to overcome these doubts. God wants us to read his word. And as we read, he's indirectly rebuking our unbelief. His intention as we read is to remove all doubt from your hearts. The application is then, to read his word and get to know him more. God wants our hearts to trust that he is able. But it's often our hearts that make us doubt. (laughs) There's a tension, isn't there? And we need to teach our hearts to trust him. And we do this by immersing ourselves in his word. We may only have a small faith, but that's okay. Because we only need small faith to move mountains. Because we have faith, we have the Spirit. 
And, and although our faith is small, it is the one who is strong. It's in the one who is strong. Trust in Jesus and nothing will be impossible. Now the last picture we get is Jesus as the royal son. The disciples have now arrived in Capernaum and Peter was asked if Jesus would pay the temple tax. Now Jesus responds by telling them that he's the son of the king. I'm going to reread this one because it's been a little while. So verse 25, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. Well, this is a little bit different to to Peter a few moments ago, isn't it? Jesus spoke first. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. The sons, oh, then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, there's three things that I, wanna, I want us to note in this um, little um, in this scene. First, is that Jesus says he's the son of the king. Now, Jesus questioned Peter about who should pay taxes, and the conclusion is that the family of the king shouldn't pay the king's taxes. What Jesus doesn't say so clearly here is that the tax is for God, his father, and so then he doesn't need to actually pay. It's sort of implied within the text that that's what's going on. He's the son of the king or the son of God and he doesn't need to pay this tax. Now the second thing to note is that although Jesus and his followers don't need to pay the tax, it would be better for them to pay the tax than to offend someone. Now the word for offend here gives us the idea that they might cause someone to sin or to, to stumble or to fall away. Um, so if they don't pay the tax, they're going to cause someone else to sin. This is that word offence. Now Jesus told Peter in last week's passage to get behind him so he doesn't cause Jesus to sin. Same word. Next week we're going to look... Um, uh, Jesus doesn't like it when some actions cause children to sin. Again, the same word. Now this week we see that Jesus doesn't want to cause anyone to sin and this is the reason he says to them, pay the tax. It's better to pay the tax than to cause someone to sin or to cause offence. And the third thing I want you to note is the actual miracle here. Now this is, it's not often that Jesus performs a miracle to provide for himself, is it? Um, and the more I look at this miracle, the more I realise that, that really nothing is impossible for, for God. <laughs> I know I should know that because we just looked at that, didn't we? But the more I look at this miracle, the more I just go, wow, this is incredible. He tells Peter to go fishing. Now, they're, they're beside the Sea of Galilee, all 166 square kilometres of water. Now, if you don't know how big that is... It's three times the size of Sydney Harbour. That's not, this is not a little stream. This is a big body of water. So he's told to throw a line out and the first fish he catches will have a coin. But not just any coin, a specific coin. The exact coin needed to pay for both Jesus and Peter's tax. 
the, the irony here is that the king is providing his son the money to pay the king's tax. <laughs> the, this miracle confirms once more that Jesus is the royal son of God. Nothing's impossible for him. He's the much-loved son. He's got the power to rebuke demons and they listen. He's got the power to know that Peter will catch a fish in a, in a body of water three times the size of Sydney Harbour and find just the right coin that they need. He is the royal son of God. And the application for us is, God is the provider of all our needs. He gives us the work we have. He gives us the super funds that we need to retire on. He gives us the houses we live in or the houses to rent. He's given us the cars we drive. Every possession we have has been a gift from God to you. And it means that we can be generous givers with all that we have, with all that he's given to us because it's all from him. The king provides for his children. But I think this last picture that we've seen does more than show God as a provider. It also binds together the other characteristics of Jesus that we've already seen today. His power, uh, you can see his glory in the royal son. His power can be seen as he tells Peter the exact coin they need to pay the tax or where to get this coin from. They're all wrapped up in this royal son of God. He's not the God of small capability, but the God of great things. He's all-powerful, and we need to trust him, especially when things are not going well for us. Why would we go anywhere else for satisfaction when Jesus is able to do anything that we ask? Jesus' face shone bright, and his father from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the glorious, powerful and royal Son of God. Through his death and resurrection, he has given us access to God. We're made heirs with Christ. We are God's children. May God grow in each one of us a dependence on this royal Son of God. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, look at this passage and, and thank you for the pictures that it paints of Jesus for us. Lord, help us to see this glorious, powerful, royal Son of God that you sent to pay for the price for our sin. We thank you that we can listen to him and trust him with our all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.